Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues Paul Matzkow. Glad to be here. Jason Kuznicki. Hello. And Matthew Feeney. Hi there. July saw the inaugural National Conservatism Conference when conservative intellectuals, politicians, and media personalities got together to articulate a vision for carrying Trumpism past Trump, for establishing a worldview and an ideology that they think can take the basics of the Trump movement and turn them into an ongoing movement after Trump has departed from the scene. And it was a fascinating conference. The speakers often disagreed with each other, came from different perspectives. But the underlying ideas articulated are of value for libertarians to understand and to wrestle with because they they present a way of seeing the world that is in many ways 180 degrees from ours. So that's what we want to discuss today on Free Thoughts and we're going to do it by way of talking about Senator Josh Howley. He was the only elected official to speak at this conference and he's one of the rising stars of this new, although it may not be actually all that new, mode of conservatism. And so to talk about this, we're going we're gonna to frame our conversation around an essay he wrote for National Affairs called America's Epicurean Liberalism. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But this essay is probably the clearest version of what I think is the underlying attitudes and ideology that, that form the core of national conservatism. And so the core of, of Howley's beef with modern America, that he wants to return America to a an alternate way of being, the core of this is that we've embraced Epicureanism, the, the ancient Greek philosophy that often gets seen as a, a form of hedonism but probably isn't. So he writes in the essay, self-fulfillment is our great national ambition. The quest for individual self-discovery defines our ethics and our notions of justice. It motivates our work, our play, and our relationships. In virtually every quarter of our national life, individual happiness as defined by each person for himself is the order of the day. And Howley somehow thinks this is bad, but it sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we are a nation that was founded with the idea that the pursuit of happiness was something good or at least presumptively good and that uh, it is something that uh, individuals ought to have, that it's it's a, a right that we have. I was struck by uh, a few pages in. I don't know how much we want to jump ahead, but uh, Holly's very good at pointing out that he views this as a product of what what uh, historians call the progressive era, where he, he says that, like so much else that influences our contemporary politics, Epicurean liberalism emerged in the progressive period. And like Jason said, I think a lot of people reading this might find that somewhat confusing because he seems to uh, be describing the kind of liberalism that motivated uh, many of the founding fathers or the, the American Revolution. Uh, quite what to make of that, I'm, I'm not sure. But we do have a historian here. I'll toss in real briefly at it. Two. Two PhDs. Um, we like. I was struck reading the piece by the kind of um, imagined history going on it, it, early on in the essay. So he juxtaposes like there's the progressive era and after when things went wrong, and then there was the vision of America that came before that, the Jeffersonian vision, this vision of you know yeoman farmers, smallholders who were full of virtue and and knew what it meant to be American and built a country on the frontier. 
Um, and the the difficulty is this, as a historian, actually, what that reminded me of. I don't know if you've read uh, you've read Market Revolution by uh, uh, Sellers, Charles Sellers. He was a Marxist, and and Sellers. Um, he has this similar kind of vision of this early colonial period where there was idyllic farm life on the frontier and, and everything was good until the market revolution came along. So the timing doesn't quite fit. But what's striking about Holly's vision is that he is dealing with a period that was always a, a myth. So Jefferson's vision of the yeoman farmer was was aspirational. He wanted an America that looked like that, and he saw some evidence of it, but it never actually was as true as he wanted it to be. So he he pretends as if this is what America once was, this land of small human farmers, uh, and kind of skates over the fact that, well, a lot of these farmers weren't yeoman farmers. They were plantation masters. It skates over the the, the existence of, of slavery and, and really – or downplays it. Um, it skates over the fact that you do have early signs of the, of the Industrial Revolution, water mills, factory towns starting to grow in, in, in places like Lynn, Massachusetts and others very early on. Um, it, it – this so he jumps from kind of an imagined myth that Jefferson is promoting for political reasons and cultural reasons in the early 19th century and late 18th century to the progressive area, and then he actually is telling history. So he's juxtaposing an, an imagined ideal vision of what America should be like with, well, then things went bad. Well. They didn't go bad. It was always more like that than you like to think, uh, Senator Hawley. Absolutely. Uh, that was uh, one of the things I absolutely wanted to get to in this essay. The figure of the yeoman farmer plays this very strange role. Uh, there's this normative uh, ideal that we're supposed to live up to. And yet fewer than 2% of Americans nowadays work in agriculture. Yeah. There is no reasonable prospect of greatly increasing that number. It's not obvious why we should want to. Yeah. Uh, we have a manufacturing sector and a services sector. They're both much, much larger. And uh, it's been that way for a very long time. This is a long-term trend. And even in Jefferson's day, people were tending to move more toward the cities. It was a thing that Jefferson himself was worried about. Yeah. And in the years since then, we have come up with ways of dealing with the fact that we're not all yeoman farmers and accepting that culturally and accepting that as a part of uh, how to run a democratic society. Uh, we no longer think of it as a terrible problem that we have a representative democracy with big cities in it, as might have been conceived as a problem in the early days. I think, though, to to be fair to Holly and to the the broader national conservatism project, he's not he's not calling for, and they're not calling for a return to an era of farming. That's that's not quite what they want. What they see is that era and the yeoman farmer and the person who's the out there working the land and then participating in the community and they really play up a religious angle to all of this. So one of their one of their real concerns about like modern America is that students aren't getting religious education. That that it's it's that that kind of attitude of our relationship to each other and our relationship to the government. The government exists to facilitate this kind of lifestyle, whether it's farming or using your hands or manufacturing. Those kinds of the kind of work that he imagines the heartland of America does, as opposed to the elite. So he's probably not a fan of Silicon Valley. But I just wanted to. So it's the core of it is is less about the specifics of the farming and more about that. 
the, the modern world is a rejection of a, a notion of liberty that existed back then. So he says – I'm going to just have a couple of quotes because I think they really get to the heart of this and I, I recommend this essay strongly to our listeners because it's, it's a fascinating essay and Hawley is clearly a very smart guy and he's a good writer um, and and he makes – I mean it's ultimately a case that I don't agree with but he makes an interesting case for this position. So. He he begins by criticizing – he says the best statement of the, the worldview that he's rejecting. So we, we need to understand what he's rejecting before we can get to what he wants to replace it with, which is this backward-looking thing, is from the opinion in the Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, written by so Justices Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy and David Souter wrote this opinion. And so there's a line in that where they say, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they to be formed under the compulsion of the state. So this is abortion decision, so that's why they're talking about personhood. Um, and, and so Holly says that what this means in kind of our modern worldview, which is both – this isn't just a leftist thing for him. He says the modern right has embraced this as well. He says, liberty in short for them is fundamentally a matter of personal choice. It's the right to choose one's own life's ends, but more than that, it is the right to total self-definition and self-discovery. And then he blames this, the, the problems with America, namely one of them is that he he thinks that this creed, as he calls it, he says, this creed has virtually no ability to offer any coherent account of what democratic life is for. Um, and so what he's – I think what he's getting at is that it's a it's a wrong conception of identity. So what the omen farmer has is the omen farmer is embedded in a culture, in a kind of job, in relations to other people. He has his faith giving him meaning and a direction in his life and in his values. He's articulating those values in a society that shares them and reinforces them and that he's living in a state that – is reinforcing all of that or enabling it or establishing it. To put a finer point on, I think, the, the point uh, Jason and I were making, um, it's not that they want to return to the farm in a literal sense. It's to that – it's a, an imagined community where smallholders live in dense social networks. They're working on the same farm that their ancestors worked on before them, on the same land, the same rituals, processes, going to church, exchanging with the same merchants. It's this very dense, stable, socially embedded lifestyle that they – uh, that he's nostalgic for. And the point I'm, I, I would like to make is that that is, has always been more imaginary than he thinks. That even in Jefferson's time, it, it, people who are historians of the period will emphasize how disruptive this period is. People are constantly moving. Um, they're, they're shifting farms along with the frontier, which, which, you know, at one point in time, the frontier is Western Massachusetts, but the, the frontier is constantly moving. People are trying to find land of their own. They're, people are rapidly changing religion, the burnt over district in Western New York. People are making kind of marketplace of religion type switches between faiths and denominations constantly. Chaos, upheaval, change, people seeking self-definition is a kind of a constant in American history, whereas they have this imagined past where things were stable and people were socially embedded and going to church and working in the same place in the same farm. And then progressivism and industrialization came along and changed all that for the worse. 
they're just it's bad history is the is the point I would like to make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't accuse them of trying to sort of revive yeoman farmerism, but uh, I do think they're romanticizing it in a way that obscures exactly what you're talking about. That uh, even before the Civil War, there is massive upheaval going on, not just on the frontier, but uh, people moving to the cities in ever greater numbers, no longer being landowners, but instead being wage laborers. And what do we do with these people? And this was a concern uh, among social conservatives even in those days. And it to some extent remains a concern among social conservatives today when people are forming new uh, social connections online, which are in many ways quite different from what one might form in either a uh, rural setting or an urban setting before the rise of the internet. I suppose this is a question for the uh, the historians, but uh, Aaron, of course, if you, you probably have thoughts on this too, it's, it, I think it's worth emphasizing that at the time this is written in 2010, uh, Josh Hawley, the byline for this is uh, he's a former uh, clerk for the chief justice. So this is before he's the attorney general of Missouri, before he's a senator. This is something. Uh, but more importantly, he says that he's the author uh, of Theodore Roosevelt, a uh, preacher of righteousness. And, and Theodore Roosevelt's clearly a bit of an obsession uh, of Hawley and, and gets a, a a good deal of attention in this essay is, is dedicated to him. But uh, to, to Paul's point, you know, Hawley writes that Roosevelt wanted to use government to restore the independence and self-mastery at the core of the yeoman ideal, which suggests that this is a mistake that Roosevelt himself was making. Uh, is that an accurate way to read? Let's put it this way. Hawley's not the first, nor will right. he be the last politician to have uh, nostalgic or romantic visions of, of, of the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the Jeffersonian ideal was you have a certain amount of integrity because you own your own land. And so even if everything around you goes to hell and is corrupted, you can always return to your farm and be sufficient. And that way, you personally won't be corrupted. And the anxiety came in when it was realized that there's going to be this permanent mass of urban dwellers who don't own their own land and don't have that kind of self-sufficiency. The thing that that worldview misses, though, is that increasingly the urban dwellers have human capital. They have skills that they can take from one city to another as needed, and that is what gives them the kind of independence that uh, the yeoman farmer had in previous ways of of uh, interacting with others. And uh, the idea that government is needed to come in and give these people self-sufficiency misses the fact that they have jobs and they are self-sufficient because of their human capital. Basically, every generation, and this this is the tie between this Jeffersonian anxiety and the Wilsonian and then Roosevelt's, uh, Teddy's um, anxiety, um, is that the this concern keeps resurfacing, which is that people are moving to cities, they are mobile, and will this lead them into kind of civic virtuous degradation? They're going to lose their kind of personal integrity and virtue. So for, you know, during the 1850s and 60s, the Republicans are very worried about wage slavery and, and uh, though, well, actually, it's a Democrat. Well, it's a complicated story. But there's concerns about wage slaves. You're no longer own your own land. You're little different than a slave yourself because you take wages from from the man working in a factory in a city. Um, but these so these concerns keep bubbling up every generation. And by FDR's time, he's also coming off of a wave of what we call kind of muscular Christianity. That the urbanization, um, the the rise, the the boom in the white collar classes. Uh, once you know now there's all these 
clerks and accountants and lawyers scurrying about uh, fewer people who work the land. So they've lost their vigor. They've lost their physical vigor. And one, you think of how important that is the TR who's like, it's important you go out and work on the ranch and wrestle cattle. So you're, you build up strong bodies, but not just physical vigor, but also spiritual, mental, civic vigor too. That there's a generation of young men, they're kind of most concerned about who have lost the attributes that make them good citizens because they've gone to cities, they take a wage, they're no longer connected in almost a spiritual or mystical sense to the land, um, into physical labor. And so they've lost the virtues that make them good American citizens. So you need to, um, you know, there's, this is, this is partially motivates TRs and the national park system. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to get people out of the cities that go out and experience the land. Um, it, it motivates a variety of different measures during uh, Roosevelt's administration as he's trying to combat this um, imagined really loss of, of vitality in our civic society. And I don't think it's something that I think we should just reject that idea that a society of of people who are mobile, who are um, moving from city to city that urbanize like this does not remove civic virtue in a meaningful sense. Yeah, we had a a bit of a cultural panic a few years ago when someone did a study that showed that grip strength among oh, young yeah. American men Grr. has declined. <laughs> and, uh, oh, no, what does this mean about who we are as people? And are we still strong like our ancestors were? And, uh, you know, like... I'm just not phased by this sort of thing. I I don't know how to ride a horse very well either. I mean, I think I've done it once in my life, and okay, you know, I can live without that, and that's that's how times change. You know, it's not uh, it's not some essence of virtue to be able to grip to a certain amount of strength. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't mean that. There's an interesting historical point which I think Paul's done a good job of outlining, which is this, this kind of concern uh, ebbs and flows throughout uh, American history, but it, it raises. I think a question about about today, which is namely, the, what's the government's role in this? And the, Roosevelt certainly view, thought, look, the government does have a role in uh, yeah. in in this project, right? To to ensure that there's a certain kind of uh, American standard that's achieved. And, and Hawley, although he's a member of the Republican Party, which has at least tried to brand itself in the last decade or so as the one of, particularly during the Obama years, as we're the limited government guys, we we, we cut spending, we we don't like um, Uncle Sam in your business. And Hawley is technically in that uh, in that uh, that group in that tribe. But but from the essay, and it, I, I think it's fair to say that his recent comments have shown that he hasn't deviated much from what this essay uh, lays out. Uh, he's a, uh, certainly a bit of a maverick, at least in in uh, in Congress. He certainly seems to have friends in the executive branch and with the president and and all all those guys. Uh, and, and the the question I think for us as a policy think tank in D.C. is well, what what does Holy want uh, to get us back to this? And what does it mean for the Republican Party going forward? As Aaron said, he's one of the youngest members of the Senate, if not the youngest. He's going to be around for a while. Well, this brings up, he, he makes a distinction, and maybe we can try to tease this out because I think it's an important one, between what he calls this ethic of self-development, mm-hmm. which is what he says grows out of Epicurean liberalism as he calls our modern way of looking at the world. So there's there's that. There's self-development on the one hand, um, but he rejects that in favor of what he calls self-governance. And so we don't we don't want self-development because – and this is he, – he makes this other rather odd um, claim. He says, 
The ethic of self-development leads to a conception of liberty that is radically solipsistic, even antisocial. It suggests that freedom is best pursued alone, as if the freest person on earth were Robinson Crusoe stranded on his island, which is a critique that like libertarians hear a fair amount. Like you, you know, they kind of no, atomize man, generally from the left, though. Usually, that's yes. a leftist saying yes. that to us. You uh, want to be alone on your island, and and of course, it's completely wrong. Like libertarians, we don't reject community at all. In fact, the very first episode of Free Thoughts is about evaluating community from a libertarian perspective, but it's that your community, there should be an element of choice in that. You, your involvement within the community should feel to a degree a, a voluntary to you. We acknowledge like you're born into a community and you don't have a choice about being in it initially and then there can be reasons it's very hard to leave it or change your, your social networks or social ties, but that it still should be about you and what you want and if you decide it's not right for you, you should have an opportunity to shift elsewhere. But that's not the same thing as this rather silly idea that liberals think the best possible human is one who never has any interactions with anyone else so as to not in any way be influenced by them because of course we're all influenced in all sorts of ways by everyone in our society and everything we consume and all of that and that's perfectly fine and okay. I wonder what the implications are for, for Hawley and his allies. Uh, thinking about uh, what Jason said earlier about human capital being very important now. Uh, and uh, fortunately, we live in uh, a country the size of a continent where people are free to move around and people seem to be voting with their feet insofar as the kind of environment they want to work in or live in. I was looking up recently that there are only about nine or 10 states that have a population higher than LA County. Uh, this is an increasingly urban uh uh, country, and I don't know what the answer to this is. If if we were bemoaning the loss of population in the heartland and people increasingly moving to places like L.A. and New York and Miami and all these places, is it? Do we do we we don't presumably if you're wholly want a Silicon Valley of Nebraska or Missouri? I, it's not quite clear what what he really wants. I think, and this was this was a theme in a lot of the talks at the National Conservatism Conference as well, is that the reason that we're getting that. The reason that, say, we're getting people being pulled to the coast and pulled to urban stuff, um, urban areas and the kind of jobs that exist there is because we've let this market fundamentalism or neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it, uh, globalization run rampant that we're, this is the only way you can compete in the, the modern economy is to work these kinds of jobs. Um, and And so people are – People are drawn to it for those sorts of reasons and what we need and then they're they're losing out. Like they're losing out in these connections, this community building, this like purpose in life and they're descending into this ethical hedonism that he rejects. Um, and, and so what we need is government. We need a robust government to enter into that and, and correct those incentives or to enable people who want to maintain this maybe mythological view of life to maintain that style of life with the support of the government. Yeah, there's a lot that's wrong with that story, though, just as a matter of history. So uh, when demographers look at records from the 18th and the 17th centuries, what they find in Europe is that people are desperate to get to the cities. They really want to go there. And when they get to the cities, these are places that don't yet have sanitation. And so generally the person who lives in a city, the typical person who lives in a city is someone who moved there and then dies there and they do not have children. And so cities are like these gigantic death traps, but people still want to live there anyway, even before they have sanitation. 
Why? Because their human capital goes further. They can do more there because there are lots more opportunities because being around more people tends to be agreeable to most people apparently. And so they are constantly moving to places like Paris or London even though it's not necessarily the healthiest choice for them. Nowadays, we've solved the sanitation problems. They're not all that difficult once you understand the germ theory of disease. And so we can build gigantic cities where all of the people in them can get the benefits of living in large urban areas. It's not something to be afraid of. It's, uh, it raises, though, the I suppose a problem for Holly going back to Aaron's point of, well, if, if we don't like this, what's the – you could have had something to uh, to have prevented it from happening in the first place, which is we should have limited competition with the rest of the world to protect domestic industries that really embodied the kind of ideal people liked, namely farming, agriculture. Uh, but because absent some sort of government program, it turns out people voted with their feet and moved to cities and huge numbers to take up new jobs. Uh, or it's to uh, actively – uh, prevent the growth of certain companies that are here already. I'm not sure what the what Holly's solution there is. It's not obvious to me that if you do those things, if you erect some protectionist order, uh, you know, to keep American domestic industry vivacious, it, that if you do those things, you get the results he wants. I, I, there's no. It's not obvious to me that you would prevent urbanization through protectionism. Right? Let's say you prevented the import of Toyota and Honda in the 70s and 80s when they loosened the tariff restrictions on imported cars. You actually, by importing cars, spread out the car industry more across more states and across more towns and smaller towns than the car industry have previously been been true. It used to be Detroit. It was all Detroit. The free market fundamentalism spread out, decentralized, de-urbanized an entire industry. So even if he's correct, I'm not sure his measures will do the thing he wants it to do. I think there's also a degree of what I'll call like the politics of taste at play here. So there are – there certainly are Americans who long for the kind of lifestyle that Hawley imagines or there are Americans who live in small towns in America and remember what things were like when they were kids and when you could you would live comfortably on you know dad working at the factory and mom home supporting the family um and they they want to return to that lifestyle of the small town where you know everyone and everyone goes to the same church on Sunday and you know reads their bible and has sunday dinner and that sort of thing but it turns out most Americans don't actually want that. Like we're a pluralistic society, right? Like just in this room, we've got one non-religious dude, two Buddhists and a Protestant, right? Like <laughs> what's the emerging, you know, what what should we be reading? Um, it's and, and I, I was looking at there were stats on there's a recent study um, or survey from Phi Delta Kappa that our colleague Neil McCluskey blogged about on the, the Cato blog um, that asked Americans, like, what do you think the main goal of public education would be? And so for Holly, the main goal of public education is kind of twofold. It's one is to promote the civic virtues, to help us become good citizens so we can then participate in this self-governance, which is not like I should govern myself, but that I should – we should govern ourselves together through the mechanisms of the state. He thinks it's that and that it should teach values, namely biblical values. Like that's the core of the National Conservatism Project. But when asked what the main goal of public education should be, only 25 percent of respondents said to prepare students to be a good citizen. 
21% said to prepare them for work and 53% said to prepare them academically. And only 6% thought Bible study should be required and 36% thought it shouldn't even be offered as an elective. Like this just isn't the, – the lifestyle that he imagines America wants and the lifestyle when he says we should be governing ourselves, we should be instituting the kind of values that we want. It turns out these are the, the tastes and values of a very small and shrinking portion of America. This gets to one of his uh, complaints about um, powerful industries, namely uh, th those you see in Silicon Valley. Holy has made himself one of uh, Silicon Valley or big tech's main uh, adversaries where he, he – um, at many opportunities, Holy will take efforts to point out that he views these companies in odd ways as uh, unpatriotic, that they'll, they're doing business with, with China uh, and that they're not really um, that concerned about um, – Let's call it civic virtue, uh, and that's uh, somewhat concerning to Holy. Also, not only because he doesn't seem to like the fact that they're dealing um, with with China, but also because these are very influential industries, and they're they're changing the minds of children, they're they're changing uh, the minds of adults as well, and and that's certainly something that concerns him greatly. Well, to be clear, I have some qualms about dealing with China. They have a terrible human rights record. They are oh, suppressing no protests I, sure. in Hong Kong. Sure, they yeah. are operating a massive system of re-education camps to uh, suppress uh, the Muslim minority in the West. I mean, there's, there's a lot that's Look, going I, on that I, I'm troubled by over there. Hey, I, uh, I have a said publicly and uh, and criticized China uh, numerous times right I, i'm not this isn't a defense of china point it's i think holy would have an issue with this even if uh, China had the civil or human rights record of of France or something sure, right sure, I, I think yes. the problem is that he doesn't like the fact that a lot of these um, America's best known companies seem as he might put it i haven't Put him put it exactly this way, but seem more concerned about the business with foreigners than with uh, the domestic polity. Sure, yeah. I mean, in the 1980s, protectionists were uh, making a lot of the same claims about Japan, which at that time was absolutely not a society which had any kind of you know, massive human rights violations of that type. It yeah. was a decent liberal democracy, but it was a threat to American prosperity. And this is a, a challenge, I think, to to market liberals, which is to tell people in in small town Missouri or, or Indiana that, well, we know you might have like lost your job in the factory where your father worked and your grandfather worked, but did you know that GDP per capita in India and China has risen quite a bit over the last couple of years thanks to trade? I mean, that's not a, a great political selling point, and I understand that. Or uh, that it's, it's, a, it's risen in the United States. Right, like that's the that's the other thing is that we can say you can say incomes have risen here. People are you know living longer, they're healthier, uh, they're making more money, they have more choices than they ever did. But to the person who is, you know, sitting in the small town where the factory has gone under or has moved to another country, um, or looking forward to like the the truck driver who is looking at you know self driving trucks just eviscerating his industry, that makes it – it's not necessarily a convincing case. Um, and I think that's the – that's like the underlying thing when, when I'm reading the national conservatism stuff, when I'm reading Hawley, is the people that he is trying to help, right, that he imagines he's speaking for are genuinely hurting. And the stories that we often tell about why things are going well, I think are – justifiably, if not rejected, at least looked on with skepticism by these people. And we as 
as market liberals say or as libertarians or as the elites, the the cosmopolitans that Holly is so not a fan of, um, we frequently don't don't take that into account in the way that we ought to or where we sometimes in our rhetoric seem to brush that aside with our arguments of just like, well, GDP is is going up. Um, the the problem is that the national conservatism project is articulated in the form of this this return to a particular vision of America, um, a they the industrial policy that they want, where government gets heavily involved in the economy, um, and then the, the form of nationalism in order to maintain a certain kind of America and keep people they see as threats to that out, uh, won't help. The people who are hurting now and and runs the risk of doing severe long-term damage and runs counter to the predominant values of the country. But that's not the same thing as saying we shouldn't like take these people's views not seriously. Well, I, I have a great deal of sympathy to uh, the view that says that uh, the American system has been tilted toward elites in a lot of ways. I absolutely agree with that. I think there is more concentration of wealth today in the United States than we would see under my own understanding of an idealized free market economy. I think that our banking regulation tends to produce uh, concentration in the industry. It tends to reward that uh, in everything from regulatory compliance costs to bailouts when you get too big to fail. I think that intellectual property skews the wealth distribution in this country to a degree that uh, is not generally appreciated but is very considerable. And I think that if we were to tackle those problems, we would see a much wider distribution of wealth. Yeah, it is. Uh, I always say to people that that I like I like this job and I like working uh, at Cato. But on my commute from Northern Virginia into D.C., it's amazing that you just pass this uh, this exhibit of of nepotism and cronyism with like these defense contractors and uh, owning entire huge buildings, and you're just going into uh, a city that's run by the you know uh, elites and concentrated interests. And I think it is a legitimate complaint that uh, the elites have um, involved themselves in government far too much and are influencing things. Uh, Beyond what they should, and if you look at uh, the the post o seven o eight recovery, you know we had this horrific uh, economic crisis, and for people like us sitting here, like for people with college degrees, uh, actually the the recovery has been doing all right. If you look at at wage growth, but for people who don't have college degrees, actually it hasn't been that great. The so called recovery, it hasn't been realized by many people, and I can understand the frustration that. All these years later, you haven't had much of a pay rise and your kid's school still sucks and uh, you're being told that you're slightly backwards. I mean, I get the, the frustration that must uh, that must encourage. There's a couple of ways you can respond to something like this. One is to say things aren't as bad as you say they are, uh, Senator Hawley, uh, which is like, gee, look, the, this is the GDP's gone up, uh, prosperity's increasing, et cetera. That's one approach. The other is to say you're right about the problem. But your solution will make it worse. Our solution will make it better. That's the that's you know if we actually had a free market, things we we the elites wouldn't have so much power and wealth. Um, I, as far as a, a third kind of rhetorical approach or third response is to point out the things that the very people he's criticizing, these cosmopolitans, like both in his 
in his uh, in his article here, but especially at the National Conservatism Conference, the people who get lambasted time and again are cosmopolitans, cosmopolitan elites, people call people like us, people people like Josh Hawley who went to elite law schools and you know clerked for the Supreme Court. Like he's not some you know proletariat you know down on the farm, Josh Hawley. He's a he's a cosmopolitan just like us who plays at not being a cosmopolitan. But um, you, you don't write an article about Epicurean liberalism unless you're a cosmopolitan. Uh, but the things that cosmopolitans have actually done, liberals have done to improve improve America. Um, and the thing that comes to my mind that you mentioned, Aaron, this call to return to like Christian values um, in the at the National Conservatism Conference, there were lots of calls. We need to um, uh, have a vision of America that is founded on Judeo-Christian values. What does it mean to be American? Well, we, and this is always the problem with nationalism is that in other countries, nationalism and nationalism is a myth. It's an imagined community, to use Benedict Anderson's phrase. It's predicated on a set of of stories, myths that we tell about the past. But in other countries, nationality is is ethnicity. Anyone can theoretically become a French citizen, but they can't actually become French. They're not really part of the French nation unless they're ethnically French, which is always a problem with um, waves of immigrants who might become French citizens and be there for three generations, but other French people don't really consider them fully French because they're not ethnically French. But in America, it's a, Americanism is not an ethnicity. It's a set of ideas. So these nationalists at the National Conservatism Convention are saying, what, what are those ideas that make one American, if not ethnicity or race or whatever? It's ideas, ideas like Judeo-Christianity. So I thought I'd, I'd just like unpack that idea a little bit. Cosmopolitans invented Judeo-Christianity. The thing that these conservatives are now wielding was invented by cosmopolitan liberals in the 1930s and 40s. That phrase itself was coined in the 1930s by liberal, mostly Protestant and Jewish clergy um, because they're concerned about the rising wave of anti-Semitism. Basically, conservatives in the 1920s and 30s are playing footsies or are themselves proto-fascists or just fascists, people like G.K. G., uh, Gerald Smith, and I won't go into all the details there. But conservatives playing footsies with Nazis in the 20s and 30s um, are uh, are basically blaming all the world's ills on – when they say cosmopolitans, then they mean – Jews, Jewish conspiracy, right? Um, Henry, you know, well, the Henry, but anyways. So that they're using, um, uh, they're riding a wave of anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic sentiment uh, uh, that's global in nature. And along come a bunch of cosmopolitan liberals who say, you know what? Despite centuries of hatred between Catholics, Protestants, and Jews, like riots, riots over, do you use the Catholic or Protestant version of the Bible in the public schools, burning down nunneries and monasteries, uh, excluding, you know, having quotas on how many Jewish students can be allowed at elite schools, like a long history of exclusion and hatred. You know what? We got more in common than you might think. So a bunch of liberal clergymen in the, 19, in the 1930s said, we're going to call that Judeo-Christian. And if you were conservative, you thought this was just guff, unimaginable liberal idiocy. Um, now, that becomes useful during World War II because during, you know it's a unifying concept. Let's unite against totalitarianism, against the Nazis. There was this um, – I went to Temple for my master's and there was a chapel 
um, on campus. It was derelict by the time I was there, but it was a chapel of the four chaplains. And there was a U.S. troop ship that got sunk by a Nazi U-boat that had a rabbi, a priest, and an evangelical and mainline Protestant pastors on board. And they like, you know, they gave their life jackets to soldiers to save, you know, they drowned themselves, you know, praying all the way down kind of thing. Anyways, it, that that idea of Judeo-Christian becomes useful for, during the war to promote national unity. It's a vision. It's a liberal vision of American nationalism. It's, and it continues in the Cold War as well because yeah. then we're up against a an ideologically godless opponent. And so it, it made a lot of sense to deploy that. It does leave open the question, what about people who don't have a religious faith? What about people who maybe don't have a conventional religious faith? Where do they fit in? And is America also a place for them or is it not so much a place for them? I wonder if that, that goes back to his rejection of the the line from Planned Parenthood v. Casey about the right to define one's own concept of existence of meaning of the universe and the oh, mystery gosh. of human you know, life. I mean, I find that kind of woolly. I mean, I I, I get what they're saying, but it is a, an unfortunate sure. way to put sure. it. Sure. But, but the point is, I think that he – his critique of that is that it's almost nonsense to think that you, Jason Kuznicki, can define for yourself like the meaning of your life and your understanding of the universe because that necessarily comes through religious faith. Oh, well, it is a preposterous idea that I'm going to get all of the answers right. That's objectively crazy. The only thing that is crazier than that is to imagine that someone else will supply me with answers that work better for me. That's worse. That is far worse because they do not have access to my interior life. They do not have access to my emotions. They do not have the same relationships with other people that I have. There's no basis to expect that a nation-sized solution in this department is going to work for everybody. I want to close by looking at the question of purpose because if you strip back all of the details – um, and and the differences between a lot of the people talking about national conservatism. One of the the underlying core ideas of it seems to be that a society, that our society, that a nation, that a people, need to have a purpose, and that the Epicurean liberalism, as Holly calls it, this self definition, um, self development doesn't enable us to have a purpose. It, it shifts the like purposeness onto the individual. It's your job to come up with your own and, and we as a society need one and because if we don't have one, we can't – the society won't function. It will break down. We as individuals won't thrive in the way that we ought to and so we as a people ought to define this purpose and then government should enforce – and or support or subsidize the ongoing development and achievement of that purpose. So we take that, okay, but does that does that argument even get off the ground? Like should a society even have a purpose? And if a society should have a purpose, how would we even figure out what that is? Well, Hayek's answer to that was the idea of a societal purpose is a category error. Individuals have purposes and the function of a government, which is one institution among many in a society, 
is to arrange things so that those purposes may be pursued independently and in peace. Uh, society as a whole does not aim at any one thing except perhaps the very limited goal of ensuring peaceful relations among people while they independently pursue goals through means that do not impermissibly harm others. Holly should know better because every time we've had this choice, a choice between uh-oh, uh, either someone needs to impose order and meaning on a group of individuals, on a society, on a community, um, and letting them make that choice for themselves. Letting them make a choice for themselves has led to good, fascinating, interesting things. Uh, he, he's a Presbyterian, like me. We both we're, we go to the churches in the same denomination, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Once upon a time in the United States, in the colonies, there were established churches. And the, the fear was that if you gave people full religious freedom to pick whatever church they wanted to go to, um, well, that'll be chaos, disorder, irreligion. It'll be a, it'll be a, it'll be a nightmare. People, you need to impose some kind of religious order, basic religious order on societies. So the Massachusetts Bay Colony, that society, that unit is going to be, well, initially it's Puritan, it congregationalist, et cetera. Virginia, it's going to be Anglican, eventually Episcopalian. By law, by force, by order, we are going to impose a certain vision of society on these people for their own good. How else will they flourish? How else do they know what the good life is like? Disestablishment, giving people freedom of choice, it makes it possible for the ancestors, the religious ancestors of people like Josh Hawley himself to be Presbyterians. Presbyterians were anti-establishmentarian, deeply so. And um, that, it, so it's bizarre. Every time he goes to church on a Sunday, he should think, thank goodness people who thought like me didn't win in the 18th century. Yeah, it sets up winners and losers. You have uh, some people whose purposes are vindicated by the government and carried out by the government and enforced by the government, and other people whose uh, purposes are the losers. You know, they are they are on the outs. They're not going to have the same kinds of privileges. It ultimately points at a society of a politically privileged class that rules over everyone else. Uh, he complains a great deal about elites, but ultimately, I think this is a bid to supplant the elites and, and become the elites. Uh, and that's, uh, that's why it's ultimately a non-starter for me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thought, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.